Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. Welcome to this week's class of Exploring the Parsha. I'm Rabbi Matt Shapiro. With me, as always, Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. We are not having this class on Zoom uh, for everyone to uh, call into this week because Friday is the day after Thanksgiving and Rabbi Schatz and I are, well, she's probably sleeping while the class would have otherwise been happening and I'm off wrangling children somewhere, but we wanted to make sure that we we didn't let a single week go by without having the opportunity to learn a little bit together. Uh, so if you're listening to this uh, on the podcast forum of your choice, we hope you enjoy uh, a little bit of learning to get you uh, through your Thanksgiving weekend. We have dressed very formally for the occasion. Uh, I'm wearing a tuxedo, uh, <laughs> but I didn't want to be too formal. So I'm also wearing a stuffed turkey on my head. Hmm. Rabbi Schatz is wearing a ball gown uh, with no turkey on her head. Because <laughs> we wanted to make sure that we dressed up for the occasion and we're very excited uh, to learn together and to share that learning with you in hopes that you enjoy. So we're going to do what we usually do um, with the class, and we are going to uh, go over a little bit of what the Parsha is about. Rabbi Shapiro will explain to us a little bit of the summary up until the point that we are going to actually look at together. And then uh, he and I are going to ask some kushio, because though we chose a verse... Um, we didn't necessarily talk with each other about what our questions were about those verses uh, that that made the verse interesting to us. So, Roshpira, why don't you go first, and then we can jump into some kushio. Great. So we're going to pick things up, um, as we often do. We're going to look at part of the Parsha that um, you you might not necessarily look at as closely as some of the you know, more marquee parts of the narrative. So we're in Vayetze. Jacob has left home. Um, he, uh, he, he is, oh, nope. Hold on. Where am I? Yeah, Vayetze. I knew that. We're in Vayetze. Grab a shot and give me a thumbs up. I got the partial right. We're doing great. Uh, Jacob has left home. Um, he has fallen in Love, Rabbi Schatz and I thought about exploring the part where uh, Jacob first sees Rachel, and they have a, a fascinating, hopefully consensual moment together at the well. Um, and Jacob is smitten with Rachel, um, and he goes to Levan and says he wants to marry. Uh, he wants to marry Rachel. Uh, Levan pulls the old switcheroo on him, and. Uh, uh, Yaakov is deceived and whoopsie daisy marries Leah instead and then has to work for another seven years um, in order to be able to marry the the woman who he was interested in all along, which is always a setup for some really healthy family dynamics. Um, so we're, we're picking up right after this has all happened. So, so we've, we've just, move through that whole section of narrative that Yaakov 
has come to Levant's house, said he wants to marry Rachel, thinks he's marrying Rachel, marries Leah instead, um, and <laughs> then finally gets to marry Rachel, which which is very interesting. I'll, I'll say that before I get into these Tukim, um, I noticed that it's just interesting in and of itself that we don't even hear about there being any kids at all before both of those weddings have taken place. Like there's, there's a seven year ellipsis between when Jacob marries Leah and then Jacob marries Rachel, you would think maybe there would be even one kid that would show up in those seven years, but there isn't right. So it's not until both of those. Especially from the person who we know from later is the one who actually can have children. Yes. Although, although yes. And as we're going to get into into those, uh, the psukim that we're looking at, um, questionable in terms of Leia's childbearing ability, stomp, like, uh, like in yes. general, before, right, right, before right, this right, happens. Right, right. Right. So, okay, so. She seems to have an easier time than Rachel does, at least. Correct. Yeah. But why, you might ask. You oh, might ask, why? and I'm so glad you did, because these psukim might, might offer us an answer, Rabbi Schatz, and anyone else who's listening. Uh, so here we, so we're going to be looking at chapter 29 verses 31 and 32. So God saw that Leah was, Leah was hated. I'm going to say, I'm going to say that intentionally in the translations that you see, you'll see unloved, but sin'ah means, means hate, right? So, so I'm not going to sugarcoat that translation, even though the rabbis seem to do a lot of rabbinic gymnastics to go there. So I'll just translate it according to what I see as the shot there. God saw that Leah was hated and he opened her womb. Uh, but, and Rachel was barren. So there's, there's an interesting comparison going on there in a couple of different ways, right? God sees Leah's hated. He makes it possible for her to have kids. Rachel is barren. So in, in the sort of Genesis way of, of, one sibling compared with the other. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening in that pasuk. Vatahar Leah v'teled ben Leah got pregnant and had had a son. Vatikrashmo Reuven. She named him Reuven. Ki amra ki ra'a Adonai ve'onyi ki ata ya'ahaveni ishi. So I'll give two translations for this. The first that you probably will see if you're looking at it um, in the Eitzchayim or on Sepharia, where it has the JPS translation. JPS translates it as, for she declared, it means the Lord has seen my affliction. It also means now my husband will love me. Um, I don't think that translation makes a lot of sense, particularly yeah. um, if you look at, at the stone translation of the stone Chumash or any of the art scroll um, volumes, I think their translation tracks a lot more linearly. And this, this might be a piece that circles back to some of the Kushio that, that Rabbi Schatz might guide us into stone translated as she called his name Uven, as she had said, because Hashem has discerned my humiliation because God has seen my affliction for now, my husband will love me. That it's less about two alternate names for, or two alternate explanations rather for why Reuven is called Reuven, and more as one more kind of seamless understanding for for why that might be, which I think makes more sense to me again in in the shot of the verse. 
So mm -hmm. those are the verses, 31, 32, chapter 29. Okay. So let's, um, I'm going to actually share my screen. I don't know why I just told you all that. I'm going to share my screen. Um, <laughs> um, it's like you're all here with us. Um, if, you were, if you were seeing us on Zoom in our tuxedo and ball gown, you would also see that Rabbi Shatza shared her screen. <laughs> I am sharing my screen because um, I want to be able to actually look at the words of the verses that you just read um, to do these kushiot. I'll ask the first one and then feel free to jump right in. Um, I'm curious as to the wording that is used in the first verse. Um, Kisnu Alea, like, uh, you know, because she was hated, or some could even read it as because God hated her, right? Because it says, Kisnu Alea, because he hated Leia, um, which I find very interesting. But then the other piece is, Vayiftach et Rahma, which, as we all know, a rechem is a womb, but it also means mercy. And and I wonder, based on um, the some of the commentaries that we're going to go into, if this idea of of using that word for womb uh, is actually intentional, because there had to be mercy felt for her, um, you know that that maybe wouldn't have been as necessary if she hadn't been this hated person or at least less loved um than than another person so that's my first kushia or i guess first two kushias yeah i think that's interesting i think there's <clears throat> there's always a lot of interesting imagery and association to play with around rechem rachamim and yeah. and all of that um i mean i'll only the big theological question um like why why does God intervene here and in this way? Right, right. right. That that is the hatred from from whoever conditional to that act of mercy, right? If if Leah wasn't hated, would God still open her womb? Yeah. Right? Would would that still have happened? Right. Um, how is it comparative? Right? That well, Leah's hated, Rachel's not, so God makes it possible for Leah to have kids, but but Rachel can't um, that maybe. Right. But, but that's, yeah. that, that doesn't sit with me particularly comfortably in terms of just the, the theology of the, of the shot of the simple meaning of the verse there. It's also just so interesting that God must know this because God created us this way, but you know, it takes two to tango. Like it's not just her. If she's barren, then yes, of course they're not going to be able to have children, but does God also hate Jacob, right? Like there, there needs to be a kind of a male counterpart for the fact that she doesn't have children. And so the hating of Leah, it only goes so far, um, you know, in terms of when we know that Rachel or really any of our matriarchs were barren, it, that yes, God intervened and then there was a child, but it was because of their husband, both, you know, because of how babies come into this world, but also because that's how the story is told. And so I wonder also, what does that tell us about Jacob um, or right. at least the male figure in this case? Right. And I think at least there's a few different pieces. I'll dip back to the Kushi in one second, but uh, sort of foreshadow, there's a few different pieces that talk about why Leah might be unloved, hated, however right. you want to frame it. Yeah. Um, a lot specifically to her, right? Whether it's because of 
the the switcheroo on their wedding night or a couple of other reasons but but it does seem to be trying to like ask the question well where where is that hatred coming from like yeah. what merits that that strong emotion that's that's being placed on her yeah. um i'll i'll go i'll hop to the other verse in terms of you know is is it a good idea to name to name your your kid uh, in terms of something that you hope will happen in your relationship with your spouse, um, I, uh, probably probably not. But but there we are anyway. Um, right? What what does it mean? Right? What what is the sense of this name? Um, in its simplest sense, I would say you break down Reuven into Ra'uven, right? They <laughs> plural, right? They see a son. So who is seeing, who does she want to see that she's having a, a son, right? What does that mean for him to be seen? What does it mean that she needs him to be seen, right? There's, in, in Tanakh, there, there can often be a lot of depth uh, and nuance in why and how um, a character is named what they're named. And I, and I think there's obviously a lot in that name specifically, whether it's what she says it is or whether what, what we might see, ha, that, that is in there, right? Um, any other kushiot? This reminds me, this isn't really a kushia, I guess this can actually lead us into um, some sources here, but this reminds me of one of my favorite moments in the Talmud, actually, in Brachot 5b, um, one of the few pieces of Talmud that I know how to, <laughs> how to quote offhand. Um, and it's this, uh, it's... This it would be great if it wasn't connected at all to this, but you just wanted to show that, show that you can name that Talmudic source off, offhand. <laughs> that would be great. I hope, hopefully that's not how it's going to appear. Um... <laughs> but it's this whole idea of Yisarin Shel Ahava, right? That that somehow when Rabbi Shapiro does not like this part of the Gemara, um, I don't like what it means, but I think that it's that because it's theologically problematic, I think it's interesting. Um, it's this whole idea that that those who do well in the world might have bad things happen to them, and that the rabbis of the Talmud wanted to come up with ways in which maybe that was because there was something great that was going to happen to them in the world to come. Now, this isn't a theology that I believe in, but I do think that it is interesting that that this here is talking about a person for whom she's having a very hard time, and then God literally recognizes her because of that, and then comes to her aid. And that seems to bring me back to that piece, the, the story that is most famous from that part of the Gemara, is that there are two rabbis, one who's sick and one who comes to visit him, and he's asked, you know, can I can I lift you up? And the end of the story is that he asks, well, why couldn't why couldn't you lift yourself up? And he says, well, a man can't take himself out of out of jail, right? That you always need other people to kind of help you out of your darkest moments, and and in this case, heal you. But but I do I don't know. It does make me think of what Leia's going through here. That if she's so hated, and we don't know by who or how. But if she's so hated that maybe God did need to intervene to make something wonderful happen for her because it was really bad for her. And that was the way that she got attention to have something really good happen. I don't know. So it's, so it's interesting. I mean, the people listening to this didn't see the face that I made. But yes, I'm, I, am tr- I am troubled by that piece of Gamara. It's, it's theologically oh, sure. to me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, 
so 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 are these verses, right? Yeah. Um, I went. Can I hop? Are we hopping to sources? Can I share? Yeah, I'll just say that I think that yeah, but we could, yes. I I was going to add that I think that I think the things that are troubling are sometimes the most interesting because they make oh for sure. That, that's why I like it. I again, I don't, I don't believe in that kind of theology, but um, or or relationship with God for that matter. Um, but I, I do think that it's interesting that our rabbis even went that far uh, to be able to think of think of ways of making people feel less suffering by saying that. And maybe it worked back then. I mean, who knows? Maybe people believed in in an afterlife more than we did. And they believe that if they died at a young age or from a, you know, got a terrible accident or whatever, that that was helpful to, I don't know. Anyway. Yes. Continue. I will, I will share a piece before I hop into the, oh, it's a, it's a source in and of itself, but um, Sarah shared with me a piece. Rabbi sorry. Sarah Baruch. Who in this context, I'm, I'm sourcing is my wife. Uh, that's who I heard it from. Uh, but she heard this from a video that Rabbi Jason Weiner recorded, um, sharing a piece from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who we are, you know, still sort of mourning and grappling with the loss of in terms of all the Torah that he shared in the world yeah. in a particularly poignant, um, thematic way. Yeah. Apparently Rabbi Sachs taught something along the lines of in, in that big theological question of like, why, why do bad things happen to good people? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, and I'd never heard this explained this way before, and I, and I think it's it's quite lovely in its way in terms of, except right seeing the uncertainty and then then working with that. Apparently, Rabbi Sachs said something to the effect of, "He doesn't know why, but he knows that God doesn't want us to know why, because maybe if we knew why, then we would stop fighting for that not to be the case, right? That that there is you know that it happens." That's something that happens in this world, that bad things do happen to good people. Yeah. We know that. Um, and we know that we don't know why. And therefore, because we don't know why, we refuse to accept that. And, mm-hmm. and we keep doing all that we can in the world um, to ensure goodness, you know, for, mm-hmm. for everyone for whom it's deserving. And, and we're, all des- right? we're all deserving of good um, in our lives. So um, terms, in terms of... Leia's experience here, right? Does she deserve to be hated? No, I don't think so, right? Like I said, when we we're going through the verses, there's a lot of rabbinic gymnastics around why she deserved it or why she's not really hated. Or, but it it's seems not- like she is hated in there. It's no, she's not the most popular kid on the block, you know. In no, this and, it's, right? and it's interesting that at least from the verse, these verses, and there are verses later that that counteract what I'm about to say, but it seems from these verses that it's not coming from Rachel, which is who we might think it would come from, right? That she feels this, this connection to Jacob, even if it was just because he kissed her once, right? She feels this connection to him that she knows that Leah doesn't have. And so it would, it would make sense to have a type of sibling rivalry, especially because in Bray, there's always sibling rivalry. But it's it is interesting that in these verses it doesn't seem to be coming from Rachel. It seems to be coming from. Oh, for me, it's very for me it's very clear who would be hating her in these verses. I think it's Jacob. I think it's obviously right, Jacob. Right. Um, and to to that point, I'll share this source that I found from from the Or Chaim talking about um, not not in that verse, but in the next verse, talking about Reuven's name, and he says. Basically, he starts talking about how Leah keeps <laughs> Leah keeps naming her kids 
what what she hopes will happen in relationship with her husband, right? First, she names Reuven, right? Now, maybe my husband will love, right? That that mm-hmm. she's saying, God has seen my affliction, hoping that now her husband will love her. Then her next two kids, right? Shimon, God heard that I am hated. Therefore, he's giving me this one, right? That her husband. Next, that, and then he asked the question. Another strange thing is Leah's conviction when Levi was born, that now my husband will grow attached to me, right? So, so three kids, right? She has these three kids hoping and hoping and hoping that something will shift in her relationship with Jacob. And, right, you can get from context that it doesn't, right? I wouldn't keep asking you for a piece of pie if you've given me a piece of pie, right? If, if you gave me the pie the first time I asked, well, I wouldn't keep asking, right? If she yeah. keeps naming her kid, please let my husband love me. Please let my husband love me. Please, well, he's not. What's interesting then is, is that then Yehuda, the fourth kid, is an expression of gratitude, right? Mm-hmm. It almost seems like the, th- the third time after she asks and asks and asks, she gets to a place where it's like, okay, that might not shift, but I'm grateful for what I have. Mm-hmm. So that to me is interesting. We're, we're getting a little far afield from Uven here, but it's interesting for me to think about her experience of being not liked, hated, not seen, and that she keeps having this experience of maybe this will do it, maybe that will do it. And and I can relate to that, right? I can relate to that of maybe this thing that I do will shift the, the quality of that relationship or not. But some relationships just are what they are, yeah. right? And can we get to a place of acceptance of that relationship? Hopefully we don't have four kids with that person before we get there. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting to think about that like psycho- spiritual element for me in terms of what what needs to happen in a relationship what needs to happen internally to get to a place of acceptance about what what the truth of that relationship is um and i think the orachayim is pointing pointing us in that direction which is it's interesting so, it's so interesting that's what the orachayim said in the next verse because the orachayim was also my favorite commentator on the verse before and kind of at least to me it feels like he's going in a very different direction so I'll read you that first one that from not the first one. I'll read you the I'll read you the commentary that he does on the verse before, um, and and we can see what you think about that in connection to the, one, to the commentary you just shared. He writes: The Torah tells us here that only God was aware of the fact that Leah was hated. She herself only felt that she was not beloved, as we shall explain by examining her own words presently. Um, if Leah had not produced children, the people would have seen this as proof that she was not meant to be Jacob's wife. This is why God opened her womb and granted her children. So I, it, I don't know. It's like, it's a very, that's a very interesting, like to have how this. Do you see, how do you see that as juxtaposed? What do you see as? I, I just, if God was really the only one that knew that Leah was hated, it's interesting that she would have named her children based on wanting for her husband to love her, right? If she doesn't it, know any different, yeah, go ahead. But it's, it's all perception, right? Like she, she sees herself as hated, right? That's what he says in that in commentary in that first verse that yeah. no one else sees. That's what, that's the opposite of what he's saying. What is he saying? He's saying, <laughs> I just lost it. There it goes. Um, he's saying that the Torah tells us here that only God was aware of the fact that Leah was hated. That Leia's not aware of it at all? Yeah, she herself only felt that she was not beloved, but not unhated. 
just not not as held up as but back in the day when you had multiple wives like of course, i mean hated is hated like I, you know i don't but it's different no. than not beloved i think no sure yeah i mean I, yes there is a difference again i think there's a i think there's a lot of rabbinic gymnastics that happen here to explain like why leia isn't really hated or just not liked as much or it's like Man, read the verse. You know, like sometimes you just need to go back and read the verse. Key snua, right? God sees that Leia's hated. She's hated. That's crappy. Yeah, I think you know, like that. That's too bad. Uh, and I wish it wasn't the case for her. But you know, I mean, come on. I think he's picking up on the fact that it says Vayar Hashem Ki yes. Leia, yes. right? That God noticed that she was hated. Yep. You know, because Leia was hated. Blah 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 blah. Yep. Right, and I, I don't know. I there are there are many things, people, aspects of life that I am not particularly fond of, but not that I hate. Right, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't. There's hate. I feel like goes so far. I mean, you yeah. feel like there's something that you have to go up against if you hate something or someone, or you know, there's there's something to be fought. Whereas it's like you just. You know, I don't hate mushrooms. I just don't love them. I wouldn't choose to eat them if I had my choice. But do I hate them? No, I don't think I hate them. So obviously, mushrooms are different than a human. But but it was an easier it was an easier example than when talking about people. Um, so I don't know. That's my no. I I, I hear that. It, to me, it still kind of bears out either way that I, I'm I'm interested in his laying out like Ruven, Shimon, Levi, that in each of those three names, there's something aspirational happening for Leia in terms of yeah. what she hopes will happen by having that kid yeah. in her relationship with Yaakov. Right. And, and by virtue of the fact that it's repeated once, twice, a third time, it doesn't seem like it's doing the trick, right? Whether she's not particularly well-liked or actively hated, She's still not getting what she wants out of that relationship. And we see that in terms of how she's naming her kids that way, which again, do you want to be naming your kids after what you hope will happen in your relationship with your spouse? Questionable thinking there um, that, that Rachel does too, right? When she names Yosef, please let me have another kid. Again, not so great, slight inferiority complex there probably, but in terms of how it's being named again and again, this is what I hope will happen. And then she seems to get to a place of gratitude and acceptance. So, yeah, I mean, could could go either way in terms of not being particularly well-liked or hated. It's still it, an interesting thing that's happening there in terms of the dynamics for me. I, I also just want to, as a woman, just want to point out that, that in my ballgown, that there is... There is something really terrible about the fact that the rabbis, the commentators spend so much time kind of flippantly, let me say it differently, um, disregarding the idea of not being able to have children as just one that, you know, puts you lower on the totem pole as opposed to being like really hard for the woman. And one of the things that Sforno says is that the reason that, and I really don't like this, um, this commentary for exactly that reason, he says that the Kisnua Leia is because after Jacob first met her, Yaakov knew that she was that she had symptoms 
of a woman who was unable to have children, and so he hated her. Now, first of all, like that, those are rabbis trying to be doctors, which I always think is hysterical because um, there are no symptoms. But but the, the I don't I, I find it very um, and it's not the first place, obviously, but it 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 is almost as if the rabbis are trying to just write it off as a thing that women should either just get over or um, that that it's something to, you know, if it's not, if you're not able to, then a man has a right to say, like, this isn't for me, right? And to love Rachel more, even though Rachel ends up being the one who has more trouble. Um, but, I, but it also goes back to your question about the seven years in between. It seems as though maybe Jacob and yeah. Leah couldn't have children until she recognized that in in relationship to or you know in being put against Rachel she's not seen as the most uh favored yeah and i'll i'll problematize it further i mean i don't it's not just the it's not just the rabbis right it's not just the fact that the rabbis are saying um this this is the case it's it's in the torah as well right it's it's this sense that um whether it's sarah or rebecca and now leah and, and rachel both right that there's a sense of barrenness that god intervenes to to sort of fix in some way shape or form and this is a dynamic that um happens again and again and that there is um and inadequacy that's happening with with all of the Imaha, right? That that it, it's happening across the board that such and such couldn't have kids, and then oh wonder of wonder, miracle of miracles, now, now they can, right? That that there is something to um being elevated to having that holier status of being able to have kids only through divine intervention, essentially. Um, that I think is if if you're thinking about any sort of gender equity um uh or or you know avoiding a complete insensitivity around issues of infertility or what it means to have a healthy relationship with another person even if you choose not to have kids right uh, that yeah. that is fraught throughout the torah um and i think fraught throughout a lot of the times of when a lot of these commentators are writing and so i think then it's left for us to kind of um, piece together what we can still learn about healthy relationships or not <laughs> from, from how central the construct of of just having a kid is in terms of what's happening here right the the very fact that like oh maybe now your your spouse will love you because oh finally you can have a kid I mean that's a big oi on a number of different levels right right, right. Yeah, it's also, I, to go back to the idea of rechem, right, the, this idea of that word being used for womb, but also in terms of feeling mercy just for herself, right? I'm sure that this was not easy on Leah. I can't imagine that she was, you know, walking around feeling like everything was good in her life, especially when there were things that were expected of her that she couldn't do. Um, and so to be able to have you know, for God to open her up to mercy or to open up her womb, whatever way um, we want to drosh that word. It's almost like both, especially going back to the names, which you were mentioning, it, it seems as though she does kind of gain a bit of mercy, at least for herself, 
over time from her womb having been opened. Um, I don't know. Now, now I'm giving a drosh, but anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is. And, and, and Malbim goes in that direction a little bit that he talks about like that comparative nature. Like I mentioned in, in looking at that verse specifically, it's like, well, Leah's womb was opened. And then those last two words of that verse, like going out of their way, like you could just say in Leah's womb was open. You don't need to go out of your way to emphasize, but Rachel still couldn't have kids. Right. right? right that, right. that there does seem to be that, that comparative sense. Yeah. Um, and he he says basically that it would have been Leah who couldn't have kids, but God had compassion upon her and went out of God, right? God went out of God's way to make sure that, that Leah could have kids. Yeah. Um, but again, there's that sense of like a weird kind of balancing of the scales. Like Leah is hated, but can have kids and Rachel is loved, but can't, right? Those, those None of those things need to seem to be put into some sort of equation for kind of who's cared about more, who has a, who, who's having a better time of it, right? right? Each of those seems really, really challenging in their own way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's just that, that the functioning of that as a calculus um, yeah. is, is challenging. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. it, there is an interesting piece. I, I always love when this happens that there seems to be a piece um, where where the Torah kind of comments on itself mm. um, later on in Dvarim. Um, I don't know if you were looking at this at all, <clears throat> but like depending on what you think about source criticism and its attendant questions that it brings up, right? It seems pretty clear that Dvarim was written, composed, compiled transmitted by the Lord, our God, slightly later on than everything else. Yeah. And and there are multiple pieces throughout Dvarim that seem to be kind of like Midrashim on what happened earlier on in the Torah, right? right. Whether in terms of augmenting and saying like, yes, this is the way, or kind of saying, mm, maybe this wasn't great. Here's another way to do it. Yeah. And there's a piece here too. And, and you can tell that it's doing this because of the way the language is, is framed, right? That in Dvarim in chapter um, 21, verse, um, 15. In verse 15. Yeah. What? Why are you making that? I, I, was, I was about to mention this, but go ahead. You were about to mention it. Well, I don't want to take it away from you. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, but in terms of the way the, the language is written, it very specifically says, Yeah. Right. That, that when a man has two wives, Again, you know, there, there might be some challenges with polygamy here that, that we might want to avoid. Um, but if, if a man is two wives, one who is loved and one who is hated, right? Again, that very specific. And if you look at the way Sina shows up in the Torah, it's used in a whole host of different ways, not often used in relationship to a spouse, yeah. very clearly used in terms of a spouse in the verses we're looking at, the verses here. Yeah. And they both have sons. And the firstborn son is of the snua, the unloved one, the hated one, um, and goes out of its way to talk about what should happen in terms of the property, right? That the firstborn should be the firstborn in terms of um, 
you know, rather than saying he must, it says in verse 17, he must accept the firstborn, the son of the unloved one, right? whoever the firstborn is, and allot him a double portion of all of, uh, of all of his possessions since he is, right, since he's, he's the firstborn. So therefore, it's his birthright. Now, there's, there's, I think, probably a number of different loops that are getting closed there when we think about Jacob and Esau, when we think about Yishmael and, and Yitzchak, right? All yeah. of these firstborn sons, however you want to construct that, that concept, right? Um, and in terms of how sort of the rug get, gets pulled out from under them a little bit, not problematic yeah. that could be. Um, certainly here too, right? Because Reuven does not get the double portion that, that Yosef does, right? Ephraim and Menashe both get land, right? Yeah. And just get, gets, gets one portion. Um, but particularly with that language of, uh, it, it's very clear from, from like that linguistic association that it's, that it's a comment there, right. which is also really interesting for me in thinking about for all of the conversation that we're having about how Leah must feel and how Jacob might feel and how Rachel might feel and how God might feel. When you talk about a functioning society or functioning family, you do the right thing regardless of how you feel, right? There's a certain code there's a certain ethic of behavior that needs to be cemented within relationships that even if i don't feel like paying my taxes even if i don't feel like doing the dishes at the end of the day even what and and the full spectrum of behaviors in between in terms of what's expected of me and in terms of the context of that relationship you still got to do the right thing and you still got to do what's normatively expected of you Right. And that's important, right? And and those verses in Devarim seem to me to be sort of pushing that forward in, in a couple of different ways that I think is both interesting and important to think about here. Yeah, and the, where I came across that verse was actually in a in a commentary by Radak, who, who, back to your point about, you know, we should just admit that she was hated and that that's the word that's being used. Clearly, uh you know, Radak did not did not want to admit to that because he says Yaakov didn't hate her. In fact, he loved her. Well, there's no basis for that. There's no reason that we should believe that. But because he loved Rachel more, obviously Leah thought that she was hated, right? And I and I, what what it does in Devarim is point out like it doesn't matter why she feels that way it doesn't matter you can you can write your way out of anything but the but the problem is that she feels that way period and what happens to the children that come out of that relationship you know are they are they allowed as we see in Dvarim to be to benefit from being the first child which is you know was a big deal back then um so, yeah, I, I found that very interesting. Oh. I want to find one last thing, and then you can close it out. The Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer. Um, so Rabbi Levi says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be he, saw the sorrow of Leah, saw the, the tsuris of Leah, literally says, and he gave her power, God gave her power to conceive, bringing consolation to her soul. And she had a child, goodly in appearance and wise. Now, we could talk later on about whether or not we think those are true attributes of uh, Reuven. But going back to to the conversation that we were having about 
you know, the opening of her womb and what does that do for her, this person who feels or is or whatever hated, that somehow God is actually giving her the power to conceive, right? That, that, that there's this idea that she's had the ability to all along, but now she feels that power that she can, that she can have children and that that brings consolation to her, to her marriage, to her life, whether or not that's the right thing, right? Because as, as everybody knows, like you're not supposed to just put band-aids over relationships, you're supposed to work through them. And so the fact that she is bringing consolation to herself by having a child, yeah. and I'm not sure that's the right move, but I love that this Midrash speaks to the fact that it was in her all along and that the way that we feel about ourselves is sometimes a hindrance to what we are able to put out into this world. And so if someone is feeling really great about themselves, they might produce something that is much better than if they're feeling really down on themselves. And God gives her the power to have a child. And I think that's really, that's really powerful. And you're making fun of me, but I think. Well, no, I think it's a lovely drosh on the drosh, right? But, but going back to how she keeps naming her kids, please let my husband love me now, right? I don't know that it works if you, if you like feed it back into the shot of the narrative. Why? Because she's still naming her kids, like, please let my husband feel close to me. Please let my... Right, but now, but she's only able to name children if she has the power to have children. And so if she's not feeling like she, like she's interested in having children in this relationship because she feels like there's so much hate coming at her, then she So it's like a first, it's like a first step, you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, could be, maybe. I like that one. I'm glad you like that one. Thank you. I also like the Havdalah one that I'm going to work through. <laughs> okay. So I'm so glad everyone's getting 10 minutes of a podcast with Rabbi Shots and I taking stabs at a midrash that we are piecing together. <laughs> Stay tuned next week for what it really means. I think I'm close. I know I, you, you don't probably think. probably are close. You're a very smart rabbi. I just Oh, want, thank you, Rabbi I Shots. don't want you to be close because I like my interpretation. Anyway, continue. What's your... Great. So I found a groovy piece from Reb Nachman that I'll share um, one of us. Of love? I, be- I believe so. Yes. Okay. Very good. So I won't go into the whole kit and or caboodle, hmm. but he lines up. It's, it's a cool idea. He lines up the 12 uh, sons with um, the 12 middle brachot of the Amidah. Now, yes, it's the Shemona Asrei. It's, it's the Shemona Asrei, which are the 18 blessings, but there's actually 19 blessings. But for Reb Nachman, there are... So we're going to say the middle 12 brachot, yeah, yeah, and we'll yeah. leave it at that. Um, but he goes through and he says, each of Jacob's sons lines up with one of those... Um, with one of those brachot, right? So the first of those middle brachot is Chonen Hada'at, so what he does is he says that um, Reuven lines up with that that bracha, yeah. and and he talks about how um, seeing lines up with like with knowledge, mm-hmm. with understanding, mm-hmm. um, and he brings a couple of of very cool proofs. He brings a, a verse from Kohelet. Mm-hmm. He brings the piece. Um, from the story in the Garden of Eden, uh, that when their eyes are opened, 
And Rashi's explanation of that is that that's when they got knowledge. So it's it's just a, a set of very cool midrashic moves on top of aligning uh, two different concepts from our tradition in a way that I think is really interesting, saying that the 12 sons equal the 12 middle brachot of the Amidah. I, I only looked at this one. I haven't looked at the next 11, although it'd be fun to check those out too. Um, but in terms of Reuven and who Reuven um, you know, might be and aspires to be in terms of at least who Leah wants him to be, right? This sense of lining that up with knowledge, with understanding, um, is just uh, sort of an interesting flip on what that name might be and seeing different, uh, you know, connections across our, our tradition. Yeah. So I thought that that was a cool piece to share. Yeah. I also, I also read that and I just, I just, we don't have to go into this right now. I just have such a hard time with Roven that I, I didn't know how to like grab onto that piece, but I do love that they, that they, um, What's your problem with Reuven? We can go into it later. Reuven oh. have, Reuven's like not a great character later on. Well, if you, according to the rabbis, he doesn't actually try to sleep with his father's maidservant. So, well, again, the shot is the shot. He tries I to. He could have, as a firstborn child, I think he could have done a little bit more with Joseph. I too am a firstborn child. I know, but I was just speaking for myself. He 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 gives it a shot. He tries to he tries to help Joe out. Yeah, but he should have tried harder. I think. Tune in <laughs> sometime soon. Yeah. yeah. No, two weeks, three weeks from now. Two weeks. Anyway, maybe then. we'll get into that. Should we? Do, does that? Should we do that? I think we know what we're doing that week. Then we're gonna sure. be talking Reuven. Sure. Okay. So now we know what we're doing. Um. Thank you, everyone, for being with us. Um, we hope that you had a meaningful Thanksgiving, though we're coming to you pre-Thanksgiving. You will hopefully be listening to this post-Thanksgiving. Or on Thanksgiving. Or on Thanksgiving. Um, or next Thanksgiving. Maybe oh, you're listening anyway. to this Thanksgiving 2021. Podcasts are forever. You are listening to this after some Thanksgiving of some... Podcasts are forever. <laughs> We are going to go now because I got to change out of my tuxedo because that, that was enough. Um, no, but seriously, we we hope that you enjoy this and we hope that you got a little bit of Vayetze. Um, If you are listening to this in 2020, um, I will be speaking on Shabbat about the infamous Sulam and also the Makom that that Jacob is in when he sees said Sulam. If you're interested in a little bit more Parsha, you can come to services on Shabbat morning via Zoom or live stream. And you're all always in Hamakom, Rabbi. Beautiful. God's name. I know, I know. Don't give away my drash. Okay. Oh, oh, mm, okay. <laughs> Spoiler okay. alert. Okay. Hamakom's a name for God. Spoiler alert. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> See you later. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.